was a young lady one time that brought her fiancé home, meet her parents. After a nice meal, the father takes this young man into his study, try to find out a little bit more about him, and asks him, said, son, what, uh, what are your plans? What do you plan to do with uh, your future? And the young man says, well, sir, says, I'm a theologian. I plan to study. Father said, theologian, well, that's great. Uh, how, do you, how do you plan to pay for a wedding ring? He says, well, sir, God will provide. Says, oh, great. Well, uh, tell me, how do you plan to, uh, to provide a house for my daughter or for kids when they come along? What do you plan to do for work? He says, well, says, sir, I, I plan to study and God will provide. And the conversation goes on like this. Every time the father asks him something of a practical nature, the guy comes back with this, with this great, pious statement, well, God will provide. Later that night, as the mother and father are turning in, mother turns to the father and says, well, how did the conversation go? Father says, well, it went, went okay. The guy has no job and he has no plans, but the good news is he thinks I'm God. <laughs> it's an admirable thing to trust God. In fact, it's essential. But trust is no excuse for carelessness or naivete about the hard realities of life. Last week, the Apostle Peter taught us in 1 Peter that believers should be casting their anxiety on the Lord. That is, to be casting all their anxieties on a God who cares for them. And we should, and that's essential. But trusting God in the anxieties of life does not excuse us from the hard realities of life. And today, one of the hardest realities we must face is what Peter will teach us, and that is... We have an adversary, the devil. Let's look together in 1 Peter <clears throat> chapter 5. As David mentioned, we're going to be wrapping up the series today. It's been a great, great time this summer as we've gone through this book. And if you've been with us, you remember the, the themes, particularly the theme of the eternal perspective that Peter has woven like a thread all the way through this book. From the very beginning, as he says that you need to, in chapter 1 he says you need to fix your hope completely on the time that Jesus comes. You need to keep that as your, your hope. Keep that as constant in your mind. And because of that eternal perspective that you have, that's to affect the behavior that you have now. Because truly, you're not just a citizen of of here in the United States, you're also a citizen of heaven. And your behavior here is to reflect that citizenship. Your behavior toward the government, your behavior in the workplace, your behavior in the home, your behavior in the church. And in that, in each of those situations, you are to focus. You're, you're, you're to love what lasts, not what fades away, but you're to love what lasts. And that's primarily two things, God's word and God's people. And when people ask you why you live the way you live, you're to have a message ever ready on your lips to say why it is you have hope in this life. And of course that message is the simple truth that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And by faith in Him, 
our sins are forgiven. And I love how in chapter 4 Peter takes that great truth and he says that just as Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose. And he goes on to the part of the book that's hard, and most often what First Peter is thought about is the context of suffering. But it's not just suffering. It's suffering in the context of eternity. Because suffering in the context of eternity lasts just that long. And so he says, just as Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose. And if faithfulness is what's required, if, if suffering is what's required for faithfulness, then purpose to suffer. And then last week, as we began chapter 5, Peter taught us about primarily the attitude of humility. That essentially our problem with authority is a problem with humility and the humble person is going to be casting all their anxieties on the Lord, on a God who cares. But now Peter very quickly tells us, as we finished last week in verse 7, that says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Very quickly in verse 8 he says that trusting God doesn't mean that you can stick your head in the sand and ignore reality. Because there are some hard realities that we have to face. Not the least of which is the devil. And so he tells us in verse 8, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I don't think any of us would have a problem believing that we live, or believing the reality that we see here. We can smell it, we can taste it, we can touch it, we can feel it, we can hear it, we can see it. All of our senses demand that the realm in which we live is reality. But there's also another realm that we can't deal with with our senses, but it's just as real. I love the picture that the Lord Jesus gives in John 3, as he's talking to Nicodemus, and he compares the Holy Spirit with wind. And I like the comparison because not only does it talk about you never know which way the wind blows, but you also can't see the wind. You can see its effects, but you can't see the wind. The spiritual realm of which Peter's talking about here is the same way. It's like wind, and that you cannot see it, but you can see its effects. Our thoughts are similar. You can't see a thought, but it is real. You can't see the devil, but it's real. Just as real as you and me here today. Just as real as this podium. Just as real as anything else you can touch is our adversary, the devil. And Peter says we are to be sober in spirit. What does that mean? Sober in spirit. Literally, he just says, be sober. What does he mean? Well, he's not talking anything to do with alcohol. He's talking about be clear thinking. Fortunately, he's used the phrase a couple other times in the book. In chapter 1, he says, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit, fixing your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of... Uh, Sound, sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And here again in chapter 5 he does it, again in the context of eternity. So what he means when he talks about having a sober spirit is he's talking about the fact that you need to have a mind that's firmly rooted in the reality of what's eternal. 
It's so easy, and this is what we really have to fight against. It is so easy to just get caught up in the here and now. Here's my problem on Monday. Here's my problem on Tuesday. Here's my problem on Wednesday, and so forth. And just taking it day to day and understanding our existence that way, as if this life is all there is. Peter says, no, it's got to be far beyond that. You need to be sober in spirit. That is, you need to keep uh, you need to think clearly. You need to have it an eternal perspective in mind. He also tells us that we are to be on the alert. Uh, one of the things that I've discovered this time through First Peter as we've gone through it is how many times Peter is telling us what the Lord Jesus told him. And you can see it quoted in the Gospels. And this one particularly is interesting. And particularly in the context of the devil, as it says, be on the alert, because that's exactly what Jesus told Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane that night, when the night before Jesus was to die. Jesus asked his disciples, will you pray with me? And they said, yeah, sure, you bet, Lord. Jesus goes away an hour, comes back, finds him sleeping. And what does Jesus say? The text says that he says to Peter, are you sleeping? Get up and keep watch lest you fall into temptation. It's the word that he used here. Be alert. Be on the alert. Lest you fall into temptation. Peter says it in the context. Be on the alert. You have an adversary. The devil. Be aware of your weaknesses. And I hope that you notice the detail. It doesn't just say the adversary, the devil, but your adversary. The devil. Dan, he's your adversary. He is your enemy. That's what adversary means. Greg, he's your adversary. He's, he's the devil. He is, he's your enemy. Absolutely committed to your destruction. We don't have a lot of enemies, do we? I think about the guy that uh, I fist fought in second grade. Okay? That's about it for me. Maybe there's some conceptual atheistic communist somewhere in the world I might call my enemy, but you know, even he is not really my enemy. His, particularly his atheism is not a, a, an enemy of mine, but rather he is a victim of the enemy and that he has de been deluded. We have an enemy, the enemy, and he is your enemy. You need to take that personally. He is your personal enemy. And he is absolutely committed to your destruction. So Peter says, be sober-minded. Be sober in spirit. Be on the alert. Because you have an adversary who is given. And what a, a great picture here. It's, it's, what a great simile. Like a roaring lion. The devil prowls like a roaring lion. Isn't that amazing? The, the picture there of a, of a powerful beast. And I wonder, too, if this isn't also kind of a veiled prophecy of what would literally happen to the Christians some years after this when Nero would have them tossed in the Roman Colosseum to lions where the Christians would be devoured. Just like Nero had them, where he talked about fiery trials earlier in the book. He had them covered with pitch and burned at his garden parties. Peter says that the devil... Prowls about. Literally, the original text reads, he walks around. He walks around. If you remember back in the beginning of the book of Job, you've got uh, 
an odd picture there of all the angels apparently periodically report to God. And at one point, the, God, the Lord says to Satan, where have you been? Remember what Satan said in answer? He says, I've come from the earth walking around on it. It's the same idea that's, that's shared here. That he's prowling around or he is walking around. And what is he doing when he's walking around? His purpose is literally, you, literally you could translate it, is continually seeking someone to devour. Continually seeking someone to devour. Waiting for that moment of someone to devour. And devour here doesn't have the idea of just ripping apart and leaving the pieces. That's not what the word means. The word is speaking of like swallowing something. Devouring in the sense of swallowing it. Um, it's interesting, the same word is used in uh, the First Corinthians when it talks about death being swallowed up by life. It's totally done. The same word is used in the book of Hebrews when it speaks of the Egyptians way back in Exodus who were swallowed by the Red Sea. It's as if they never were. What Satan desires to do when he continually seeks and goes around trying to devour is not to just rip apart and hurt, but that is to cover in the sense of putting them out of commission, to putting us out of commission, where we are no longer in effect, as if we not, were not even there, to be totally consumed. This comic illustrates... Uh, a great truth. Oh, I did it again. Okay, turn back. Sorry. <laughs> this is great. Brian did this. See the reality there. <laughs> Can you back up and then have it appear? It's funny. Okay, watch. Here he goes. There it is. All right. Popping up. This is actually a, a preview of something to come. We're going to have fun. We're going to get back into Route 66. In, uh, next week is our anniversary, and then we'll get back into Route 66 or we go through each book of the Bible, and we'll be uh, in Daniel in a few weeks, and we'll be talking about the lions again there. So it'll be fun. But here's the comic. Say, it's not fair. How can they expect us to compete if we're not on a level playing field? Now, normally, you don't think about that in relationship to baseball, which I guess is what's supposed to make this funny. But when I saw that, I thought, you know, that is exactly the way we are when we try to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil. Because we are not on a level playing field. He can chew us up like a lion, like a Christian in the Roman Colosseum with nothing to defend himself but just speed. Nothing. And that lion's going to catch you, and that lion's going to devour you. If you go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil on your own, you cannot stand up. You absolutely cannot stand up. D.L. Moody wrote one time, My friends, you are no match for Satan, and when he wants to fight you, just run to your big brother who is more than a match for all the devils in hell. Peter's told us this, to resist the devil by keeping your mind focused on the eternal truths of Scripture. Resist the devil by keeping your mind focused on the eternal truths of Scripture. In other words, he says, stay sober in your mind, stay alert to your weakness. Stay sober in your mind, Stay alert to your weakness. Peter learned this lesson the hard way. There's a couple of times, particularly in the Gospels, where Peter is said to have direct dealings, or I should say where Satan is said to have direct dealings with Peter. A, that's a scary thought, isn't it? But it's true. A couple of times. Uh, 
One of those times was up in the Golan Heights when Jesus and his disciples were at a place called Caesarea Philippi. And he, Jesus asked the disciples, he says, who's everybody say that I am? And he says, well, they say, some say you're this, some say you're that. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for all the disciples, said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right. And this hasn't just come to you. Uh, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father has revealed this to you. And Peter probably gets to feeling good about that. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, man, that's great. I'll call you Peter. And on this rock, I'll build my church. And he goes on. And then shortly after that, he goes on to say, and from that time on, Jesus began to tell his disciples that he had to die, he had to be crucified, and raised again. And it's funny, the text says that Peter takes Jesus aside. You can take him aside to rebuke him. He wouldn't want to do it in front of all the other apostles. Take him aside and rebukes him and says, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And the implication there is for Peter, I've read my Old Testament, Jesus. I know what's supposed to happen to the Messiah. He's supposed to reign. He's not supposed to die. And what was Jesus' comment when Peter said that? He said, to Peter, he said, Satan, get behind me. Boy, wouldn't that have rocked your socks if you were Peter to have Jesus look straight at you and call you Satan? But why would he call Peter that? Or actually, he was talking to Satan, but why did he say that to Peter? Because he said, after that he said, uh, Satan, get behind me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of man. It is where the mind is set. And isn't it such a fascinating observation that we can make as we, as we think about that passage, that how you have in one minute Jesus going, a boy, Peter, fantastic, you're exactly right, God has told you that. And the next minute, Peter... That is absolutely wrong. The devil has told you that. Isn't that amazing? This has been revealed from God. This has been revealed from the devil. And Peter, you're right in the middle of these two. Incidentally, the exact same thing is true of you and me. We can be spiritual one moment. We can be right in line with the will of God one moment. The next moment, we can be right in line with the will of the devil. Amazing truth. And I think the key is what Jesus said when he said, your mind is not set on the things of God, but on man's interests. You think of another time this happened to Peter? The night before Jesus died, uh, Jesus came to Peter there in the upper room at the Last Supper and said something to Peter that I hope Jesus never says to me. Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, the devil has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Mmm, what a nice picture. To sift you like wheat. And then he goes on to say, but I've prayed for you. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. I think it's wonderful that Jesus would give that kind of an insight to Peter and also to us. Because the disciples were scurrying around that table that night wondering about who was going to be Jesus' right-hand man, who was going to be the best, most important there in heaven. Jesus says, there is a battle, Peter, that you're not even aware of. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And here's what I have asked, that your faith may not fail. I have prayed for you, 
And when you have turned, in other words, he's telling him, you're going you're to blow it. But when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. You're going to be able to learn from your failure and to not be an ultimate failure. When Kathy and I were in Jerusalem, I got up early one morning by myself and went uh, hiked to one of the top of, uh, top of the Mount of Olives because I wanted to watch the sunrise over Jerusalem. It rises, of course, in the east, and as I sit on the Mount of Olives, the sun would rise behind me and uh, would see all of Jerusalem there. And so as I sat there in the dim light reading my Bible and thinking about all the wonderful history that was going on in the very place that I was looking at, the sun began to rise, and as the, sun, the, the beams of the sun began to hit the Temple Mount there in front of me, uh, I was in a really, really, what you might call a spiritual mood. It was great. Just, you know, there with my Bible, there with the Lord, by myself. Nobody else was up yet except me and the roosters. And I was not expecting it at all, but right there as the sun began to rise, over to my right, you can think of this as my right, uh, I heard a rooster, loud and strong. And immediately my mind thought about Peter. Because in that very city, at that very time of day, what happened to Peter is that he remembered what Jesus told him after he said, I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. When you turn again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter goes on in his self-confidence to say, Lord, I'd be willing to die for you. And Jesus said, no. Before the rooster even crows today, you're going to deny that you even knew me. And, and what's funny about a rooster is he doesn't just announce it one time. Have you ever been on a farm or whatnot and heard a rooster? They go at it for a good half hour. And there wasn't just one rooster there that morning. It was interesting. It was about five, at least five of them, just going off for about half an hour. And immediately my mind was turned to Peter. And thinking about how Peter, in the self-confidence of the upper room, would say to Jesus, No, I will never deny you. I will die for you. And yet how several hours later, by a campfire, a little servant girl says, You are with Jesus, that guy they're about to string up. And he says, No. And he says it three times. In fact, he cusses to prove that he has nothing to do with this religious guy. What is it in us? We see these two times that Satan had his way with Peter. With once him to say, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, that's great, that's from God. And the next breath, that's what you just said is from the devil. In the upper room he says, Lord, I will die for you. And yet there by the campfire he says, I don't even know him. And incidentally, both of those incidents happened within the course of 24 hours. Isn't that interesting? And both of those incidents, Satan is said to be directly involved. Now, you don't think that what Peter is writing here, he doesn't speak from experience and understand what it's like to fail and then also to be restored. And Peter is saying, my friends, the way that you deal with the devil is not toe-to-toe, but rather you stand firm in your faith. You're sober in spirit. You're on the alert. Because your adversary, the devil, is seeking someone to devour. Resist the devil by keeping your mind focused on the eternal truths of Scripture.
He gives us another way to resist in verse 9. Look at that. He says, But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. What does he mean there? How is that an encouragement? What he's, what he's essentially saying is that you need to know about others' struggles. Or you could say it this way. You resist the devil by remembering that you are not alone in your struggle for faithfulness. And I'll tell you one of the two best ways, if not the two best ways, that the devil can get you by yourself in such a position that you're ready to be devoured is to get you out of the Word of God where you're not, you're not regularly reading the Bible on a personal level and also out of fellowship with other believers to where you're not regularly involved on a personal level. Now, it's great to come on Sundays. That is absolutely fantastic. But my friends, that's just the start. The Christian life should not be limited to this. Your fellowship should not be limited to this. You need a small group of Christians that you can get around, that they can get around you, that they can say, you know what, I blew it this week. I had no idea that this was going to happen, and this was going to happen, and this is how I dealt with it. And immediately your heart's going to be bonded to their heart, and you're going to go, you know what, that is exactly how I feel. And here's what I did. What did you do? And you're able to interact with each other. I think that's exactly what Peter's talking about here as he says that you're able to resist him firm in your faith, knowing. In other words, here's how you resist. Knowing that you are not alone in these experiences of suffering. You absolutely must be involved on a level beyond the surface with other Christians. Otherwise, you are off by yourself. There is a proverb that's great. It says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. It's not sound wisdom to get off all by yourself and be a lone ranger. You've got to get involved with other believers. God never designed you to uh, try to do it by yourself. And, and this is what Peter's saying. You resist him not only, uh, verse 8, by being sober spirit, being on the alert, that is focusing on what's right personally, individually, but you also do it, verse 9, knowing that you're not alone, that there are other people going through the exact same thing that you're going through. Peter says that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished. It doesn't just mean that they're going through it, but it means they're going through it with a purpose. And here's the purpose, verse 10. In fact, this, I think, my opinion, my opinion, this is the, the key verse for the entire book of 1 Peter, is 1 Peter 5, verse 10. He says, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know what amen means? It's not just a way to clue you in on to open your eyes and lift your head. Amen means true. Amen is actually a transliteration of the Greek word amen, which means true. So when like somebody says something, those of you that grew up in a Baptist church like I did, somebody says something, some brother in the back goes, Amen. What he's saying is true. I agree with that. When Jesus says, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, the original language, he says, Amen, Amen, I say to you. It means truly. 
And so what, what, Jesus, what uh, Peter is saying is here, to him be dominion forever and ever, true. This is true. And incidentally, if he's got dominion forever and ever, that includes right now. Keep that in your eternal perspective. And he says here in verse 10, after you've suffered for a little while, here's what God's going to do. Four things for the one who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Four absolutely outstanding things. He says, first of all, he will perfect. He will perfect. The word means that you will strength, you will make something as it should be. Um, you get the picture here of God finishing the work that he began in you. As you should be, God will make you. That he will confirm you. It's a, it's a neat word. When you, when you confirm a decision is what it means. You have the idea of, you, of a decision that is made and it's final. That there's no going back at this point. It's final. You're confirmed. Uh, he will strengthen you. Pretty much, that's, that's just what it means. But it means to, to cause somebody to be able to do something that they're not able to do on their own. And finally, to establish you is wonderful. In fact, I almost see a progression here. Perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Establish means that you cause someone to be unchanging. Someone is firmly loyal or unswerving. Now, how in the world could this ever be true of you? Unswerving. How could that ever be true of you? If it were not for, as Peter says in verse 10, the God of all grace. Grace. That's the answer as to how this can be true of you. Grace. And that's it. And again, I think this is a key verse, verse 10, for the whole book, because it talks about suffering. It talks about what will happen in heaven. But it also gives us the perspective that is absolutely critical. And every single week I've hammered it because every single week Peter does. That is, he says, after you've suffered for a little while. It's temporary. A little while. And then what does he contrast that to? The God of all grace who calls you to what? His eternal glory. You've got a little while compared to eternity. Eternity. But our perspective is often different. A lot of times we'll view life like this race. The guy in the front who's winning. Life is great. The next guy, life is good. The next guy, life is okay. The next guy, life is unfair. The last guy, I quit. That's how we'll view life. Depending on where we are in the lineup, it depends on how great life is. But life has got to be focused on something that's a little bit more than where you are in the lineup. <laughs> it's got to be focused on eternity. And that's why Peter says here in verse 10 that after you've suffered for a little while, you will have eternal glory. You could say it this way for a believer, suffering is temporary, perfected glory is forever. There was a college student who had uh, some trouble, as a, college, as a lot of college students do, particularly in the area of grades and money. And she knew she was going to have to let her parents know about this. And so she figured she'd do it through a letter, and she writes a letter to her parents and says this, Dear Mom and Dad, 
Just thought I'd drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I've fallen in love with a guy named Jim. He quit high school after grade 11 to get married and about a year ago got a divorce. We've been going steady for two months and plan to get married in the fall. Until then, I've decided to move into his apartment. I think I might be pregnant. At any rate, I've dropped out of school last week, although I'd love to finish college sometime in the future. And then on the next page, as you turn it over, it says, Mom and Dad, I just want you to know that everything I've written so far in this letter is false. None of it is true. But it is true that I got a C in French and flunked math. (laughs) It is true that I'm going to need some more money next semester. You see, from the right perspective, even bad news sounds like good news, (laughs) doesn't it? And I don't think Peter is setting us up here, okay? I don't think he's setting us up like, like these folks were set up. But I do think Peter is saying it is absolutely essential that for you as a believer in Jesus Christ to get your perspective off of Monday's troubles and to think about forever. Because the suffering that you're going through now is only for a little while. The glory is forever. And so I want to offer you a very free translation, you might say, of verse 10. All right? This is what it's saying. That the trials that you're going through now are for a little while. But when the eternal glory of God comes, God himself will put you in the holy condition you belong. God himself will confirm the final decision that he has made about you. God himself will make you strong and capable God himself will cause you to be fixed and unchanging, firmly loyal, constant, unswerving. That is exactly what verse 10 is teaching. For a believer, the suffering is temporary, but the perfected glory is forever and forever. And then the last few verses of this book are not just thrown out as a postscript. But Peter says, verse 12, Through Silvanus, or Silas, you might have translated, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Silvanus, or Silas, evidently was uh, Peter's secretary here, kind of wrote it down while Peter dictated it. Mark, here at the end, is John Mark, very good uh, friend of Peter's, disciple of Peter's, the one who wrote the book of Mark in the Bible. And it's interesting, if you read the book of Mark, you have uh, a lot of great information about Peter that we don't have any other spot. And then finally, the great uh, verse for all college ministries, verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. I say that kind of uh, joke, I almost said tongue-in-cheek, but that doesn't fit (laughs) with what we're talking about here. But I say it kind of of tongue-in-cheek because I was at a college ministry one time and they took this verse really uh, literally for our culture 
And actually, in that culture, they did kiss one another, but it was the same, same sex uh, greeting. There was no, uh, there was no uh, cross. Well, you know what I'm saying. What's funny if, uh, if you, what's that? Yeah. No. <laughs> but if you go over to uh, other cultures, particularly in the East, when I went to Russia, there was uh, almost got almost got a kiss right on the face by uh, this big Russian man with a beard. Uh, so any, those of you who are planning to go to Russia, practice on Brian Collins after the service. <laughs> He'll be waiting for you there. Get get that, but. Uh, Basically, it's a cultural thing, and I think I don't think Peter's necessarily saying we need to be kissing each other. Uh, I think it's very cultural, but it does mean that gr- whatever your greeting is it needs to be love. Whether it's the holy hug or the holy handshake or whatever, let it be love. And then he ends as he began. Peace to you all. In the very beginning of it, he started by saying, uh, grace to you. May grace and peace be yours. Verse 2. And now he says, peace be to you all who are in Christ. I hope you don't just slide over the last two words there. Because only if you're in Christ is there peace. What Peter has talked about all throughout this great book and giving us an eternal perspective is a message that is absolutely critical for believers. But you know what? There's also a message here for those of you who have not yet placed your faith in Jesus, or perhaps on the brink and wondering, should you? And the answer is yes, you should. Because you are an eternal person, whether it is eternity with the Lord Jesus in heaven, or whether it is an eternity with our defeated enemy, the devil. Are you in Christ? If not, place your faith in Jesus today by believing that he died on the cross for your sins. And if you are in Christ, if you are a believer, Peter's taught us today that the clear source of suffering is an enemy that we can't see, and yet who was on the prowl for those who are unprepared. So be prepared and stand firm, knowing that you are not alone in the struggle. Everybody struggles just the way you do. The Lord is with you as well. And that this struggle is only temporary, but the glory that we are headed toward is forever. Father, we just bow before you today and thank you for the great privilege this summer to be able to go through Peter's first epistle, written to those who were struggling to live out their faith in their culture, and Lord, we too can relate as we struggle to live out our faith in times like these. I pray that you help us to apply the great truths of these books of this book, the rest of our life. That as we think about all the struggles that we have, that we remember they're only temporary. That the glory that we're headed towards is eternal. And so we praise you and thank you that we must stand firm against an enemy who is already defeated. That the victory that uh, we have is something that is certain. It is not something that we have to fight for. That it's all been done when Jesus died on the cross and when he rose again. And so, Lord, we praise you for that truth, and I also pray today for the one here, perhaps out of curiosity, who has not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that if they were to die this day, would go to face a Christless eternity. Move in their heart 
that they might accept the free gift of forgiveness through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.